You are listening to Curious Cat, a podcast that examines the shadowy space where science and the supernatural collide. And I'm your host, Jennifer Holtz. Join me every week as I examine what it means to be a soul in a meat suit. Welcome to Curious Cat. Hello and welcome. Today's episode is the first puzzle piece in a conversation about endeavoring to become more spiritual. I'll share the missteps and obstacles in my journey, so far at least, in hopes you avoid the same potholes. This episode specifically will focus on cutting out the spiritual middleman, even if that middleman is the governor in your head. But let's begin at the beginning, okay? If you found Curious Cat through my writings on Substack, then you might already be familiar with the following. So let me apologize at the outset for the repetition. For those of you that are new to my writings or this whole thing, um, my father, Gary Riley, passed away almost exactly a year ago today. In the weeks leading up to his death, he was hospitalized. And it was during the time of COVID. My father was blind. He wasn't allowed an advocate in the hospital. We weren't even allowed to visit him. My dad and I were extremely close. I mean, we texted every morning over coffee and every evening while watching Judge Judy. Because of that, when they placed him in the ambulance that would transport him four hours away from his beloved home to get adequate care. He shared his fear with me, his sheer terror. I've gone back and read those texts, him expressing that fear at being helpless, blind, on his own. Weeks later, before he told the rest of the family, he'd been there for about three weeks, he shared his truth with me that he wanted to recover just enough to come home and die on his own terms, surrounded by loved ones. That was sacred space to me, and I'll forever feel honored that he trusted me and saw that I was strong enough to receive this. Our conversations would pivot to dark humor, which is the way Riley's deal with the worst life deals us. No matter how dark our conversations began, soon dad and I would be laughing in earnest. It was during one of those talks that he shared what he wanted his post-life to look like. For his sake and to protect the rest of my family, I thought I bottled up my anxiety and sadness in that moment. It was like a spiritual Molotov cocktail because I knew eventually I would explode. And that might mean doing damage to someone I loved. So out of desperation, well, I'd say two parts desperation, one part curiosity, I started to dive into my spiritual self as a way to cope. I listened to podcasts about tapping into the sixth sense. I started paying attention to my dreams in a more formal way. 
I mean, my dream life has always been very rich. It's what brought me my first four books. But I started formalizing it. I made my first dream journal. I found a three-ring binder tossed to the side in the garage and some old lined paper my kids had from when they were little. In fact, um, it was my dream life that opened up me and prepared me for my father's death. I got to see glimpses of his transition from this life to the life after. I mean, that's what I call it because there's more, there's much more after this iteration of us. I had this one dream and um, it was probably did the biggest, it had the biggest impact on me um, as he was passing because I had this image in my head of this dream that kept me going. And in it, we were, all my family was with us and we were accompanying my dad through an airport and he was his 40-year-old self, his like Robert Redford self. And um, we were there and he had to go up to the stairs. He said, I have to do this part by myself. And he was going up to where the gate was, where he was catching his plane. And he turned back and I said, hey, dad, do you have everything? And he he kind of patted his the front of his jeans and he said, I've got everything I need in the pocket of my jeans. And his eyes, his blue eyes sparkled and he left for the airplane. So that image of him being healthy, able-bodied, seeing again, it sat, it sat well with me because I knew that his pain was going to have an end at some point and he would be in that body again, his able-bodied self. He'd be free of the meat suit that had worn out. Anyhow, in my dreams, I got to see little glimpses like that that got me through. Three weeks, he'd been in there for about three weeks, three and a half weeks actually, now that I think about it. My younger siblings and my mother worked really hard to get my father the ending he wanted. We met with a palliative team. We, um, the majority of us were over a conference call, but my, my brother and sister were able to go there in real life. It was the first access we'd had to the hospital. And they were with my father and the palliative team physically when he was able to say, I just want to come home. Two days later, the EMTs accompanied him on that four-hour road trip back to Fort Bragg. Once inside, they shook his hand and said it'd been an honor to know him. That's the kind of guy he was, making friends right at the end. In the days that followed, a steady stream of close family came to visit. And on the night before his passing, my eldest and I, who had traveled to the Mendocino coast to say goodbye as well, but we were not staying at the house. We were just staying at a little place, a little inn down the road. We had tandem dreams that night before he died. They were visitations from Gary Riley as he was preparing for what was next, while also mourning what he was leaving behind. I'm not comfortable sharing this part of the story on my own. And one day, if Nora is open to it, maybe they'd come on the podcast and we could share that part of our story together. But for now, know that we were there when he died. We were able to be with him. And after we all scattered back to our respective homes on the map, I spiraled into this deep depression. 
I didn't want to be here anymore. It was a pain no one could solve, so I turned again to the spiritual. If I could stretch the limits of my soul, could I catch a glimpse of Dad's new zip code? And if that was the case, maybe it'd be okay to keep living. So that's how my spiritual journey saved my life. Soon, though, as I dug into the subject, I kept hearing this like judgy voice asking, Is this book godly? Is this knowledge dark magic? The exclamations came from this like Bible study teacher embedded in my head. On and on she went, dark, light, good, evil, sanctioned, damned, heaven, hell. Growing up, I guess I'd been conditioned to believe there was no room for gray. And that's how I was introduced to the spiritual middleman in my head. I had to evict him in order to take my power back. If you're a gamer, it was a boss battle. A knockdown, drag out fight. But I made it and nothing would bring me more joy if I can embolden you to do the same thing if you endeavor to. So what is a spiritual middleman? For the purposes of this conversation, it's any guru, channeler, channeler, healer, teacher, shaman, podcaster, or religious leader that believes they have higher power, more worth, or greater status than those they teach or lead. A spiritual middleman can be identified when dependency is encouraged. Like you have to subscribe to something or come each week to a meeting or class or session, that type of thing. Conversely, independence is discouraged and it's often berated or like called blasphemy. There's no studying on your own or interpreting religious texts for yourself. There's this expectation that you must bow down to their authority. They may even be invested in keeping you spiritually asleep. It may be subconscious on their part, or it's their antiquated traditions that don't support spiritual awakening. Regardless, any of this is dysfunctional, and the dynamic suppresses your spiritual awakening. So their standards of worth are literally blocking you from progress. So this feels like a good time to share with you what you need to do to actually wake up spiritually. I found an article about it on Wake Up World website, uh, which I have quoted in the show notes. So there's a link down there. They say, number one, you need to know your unconditional worth. Number two, you need to own your intrinsic power. And number three, have a direct connection to God or source. I was conditioned to believe I wasn't worthy of going directly to source or for my voice to be heard. It's one of these recurring themes of Jesus' time as a human, if you've studied that. He wanted to empower us to seek a direct relationship with God. Others take this further. Um, Author Roberta Grimes explored what she believes was Jesus' attempt to abolish, abolish organized religion in her article titled, No Middleman. Jesus quotes what Isaiah said 800 years prior when he expressed that God is disgusted and not charmed by all of our human-made religious practices. Jesus said in Luke 11, 52, quote, Woe to you, religious leaders, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. She goes on to ask, and I thought it was kind of funny but cute, Who can forget the moment when Jesus altogether lost it? Her quote is um, from Luke 19, 45 to 48. 
Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. In Matthew 6, 5-6, through 6, Jesus encouraged worshipers to avoid praying in religious assemblies and instead seek privacy and pray to God on our own. If you follow the link to Grimes' article in the show notes, and I hope you do, take time to read through the comments as well. They're really interesting. One man explained what occurred to him after he joined the church, saying, Very quickly, the religious organization became the God. If you're uncomfortable with the thesis that Jesus endeavored to burn down organized religion, yeah, I feel you. Me too. Maybe that's a stretch. But Jesus was clear, repeating over and over that we have a direct connection to God. We do not need a spiritual intermediary. And this gave me comfort. It's emboldened me to claim my direct line to source. So when did spiritual middlemaning become a thing? Probably the moment a group of people gathered to worship and someone professed themselves to be the leader, and then they realized they could make some money doing this. In that vein, I dug down and did a ton of research and found an anecdote that seems relevant about the Gutenberg Bible. In 500 AD, scriptures were translated into multiple languages, and then a hundred years later, the Roman Catholic Church declared Latin as the only approved language for scripture, the language that priests were able to read and translate, right? Latin. But curiously, their flock did not know Latin. In 1229 AD, the Council of Toulouse strictly forbid and prohibited anybody that wasn't working with the church, lay people, I guess, from owning Bibles. And then 150 years later, John Wycliffe, believing people should be permitted to read the Bible in their own language, in defiance of the church, he translated and produced the first handwritten manuscripts of the entire Bible in English. But the church was mad about it. 31 years after his death, Wycliffe's death, the Council of Constance charged him with more than 260 counts of hearsay. Church officials dug up his bones, burned them, and scattered his ashes on the swift river. Then, in 1455, a German named Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. He produced the first printed Bible, the Gutenberg Bible, which was in Latin. In 1525, William Tyndale produced the first translation of the New Testament from Greek into English, and this was a big deal. He was later condemned as a heretic. You know, this is a theme, right? He was strangled and burned at the stake for translating the New Testament from Greek into English. They say you can tell someone's weak point by their response, their Achilles heel, right? The church showed they believed their power came from being the sole authority to disseminate and interpret the scripture. In other words, spiritual middlemen. The printing press and subsequent translations into accessible languages made the necessity of the church as interpreter null and void. I thought that was pretty interesting, that whole chunk. I It was new to me. Some of the, I didn't realize people had been burned at the stake for translating the Bible. So coming back to our discussion about spiritual middlemen, they're bad, right? But a healthy relationship with a spiritual guide or teacher is really good. 
But what does that relationship look like? It's worth defining what healthy means. A good spiritual teacher discourages hierarchy. Instead, they will direct you inward to find and claim your own power and worth. An awakened teacher will meet you on equal footing no matter where you are in your journey. You could be day one and they will treat you the same way as if you're on day 5,000. In this relationship, both of you are honored and respected and neither of you is asked to give away your power. It's a red flag if you are. It's important to have peace of mind as you set off on your journey. That's what I found. As you endeavor to dive into learning about all things spiritual, question everything. And if something doesn't feel right, it's not. Ask yourself if you've traded one set of beliefs for another. Are you dependent on a spiritual middleman? Does someone or something have power over me? Do I feel less worthy than my spiritual teacher or mentor? Do I rely on a spiritual middleman for guidance, prayer, security, or spiritual connection? If the answers are yes, fire the middleman. Learning all of the above, the roots that were like the invasive ivy in my pursuit of or freeing myself of the spiritual middleman involved not feeling worthy of going directly to God. Somehow I'd grown up believing I had, it was a bribe system. I had to bribe my way to gain access to the big guy. Be kind, do good, stop for pedestrians. Then maybe I was thinking he would answer my prayers. I was stuck in this toxic loop, but then the most amazing thing happened. The word grace kept showing up, grace, on car vanity plates, song titles, ads, name tags. It was crazy. The universe was shouting at me, and when I recognized it, I did a web search. Grace is God's unconditional love, unconditional as in given freely without any expectations. We are all given the gift of grace unconditionally. The final salve that I needed happened during meditation. My cell phone died mid-session. I grabbed the charger cord, plugged it into my phone, and realized, oh my God, that's it. A phone charger doesn't judge me because I need it and then use it. It didn't secretly expect special access to the best outlets in my house because I'd used it to charge my phone. So why would God or source be any different? When I need to tap into the collective love or energy, I should plug in. And thanks to that epiphany, I no longer see asking or needing God or source as an emotional condition-based exchange. It's so unhealthy. It's not. Hand in hand with that aha moment was the understanding that God or source have no idea they're needed unless we do plug in. Like the phone charger doesn't know your phone's battery is low. It just is there to be a conduit between that and the energy that's always kind of flowing, right? Same thing with the collective love, source, God, whatever you want to call it. It's just waiting to be tapped into. God's ear is always available to us all the damn time. So the final obstacle I faced was questioning my connection to God. Was I really hearing him? This knowledge, this book, this message, this information, this passage. So 50 years of living in a culture that is obsessed with its two-camp archetype, 
I was led to certain places, then heard this, that again, that Dana Carvey church lady in my head asking if my resources were godly or a fast track to hell. The breakthrough in this area again came through meditation. It's the only time my brain, I'm like quiet and I actually hear as I'm supposed to. I was deep in a chakra aligning meditation and in it, we were climbing up, up, up the body to cleanse and energize. And all of a sudden I was filled with this warm white light. In my mind, I was no longer my body. I had been absorbed into part being part of everything, the plants, the dirt, other people, the stars. It was universal love. I was connected to all, to source, to God, whatever words you want to call it. Those are all semantics. What matters is that connection to the divine, us to everything else. It is real. The first time I reached that place, I was euphoric. It brought back memories of a time long ago when I was practicing over and over on the balance beam, a back walkover. I did it thousands of attempts. And then finally, when I landed, I couldn't even believe I'd done it. I actually hadn't absorbed that I did do it. Both feet on the beam, my body felt electrified. I'd done it. I was exhilarated. Well, that's what it felt like plugging into the collective. It is exhilarating. Then out the windows, there was a rumble of thunder and then a crackle and then a downpour. I was thinking about the people that are in that moment trying to stay warm and dry because they live on the streets in Seattle. And then tears started rushing, like just falling down my face. I cried for them. And I didn't understand how I could feel so exhilarated and then so sad in the same breath. But that's the thing. To be part of the all, you feel all. You can't avert your gaze. It hurts and it soothes all at once. I promise it was worth the trouble of extracting the spiritual middleman, but now I'm kind of keenly aware that it's my job to stay connected to spirit. I'm pulled away from that pursuit a lot, like mostly to take care of two-dimensional stuff like pets, paying bills, work, but... I remember more often to connect my soul charger to source. And when I doubt, I ask my angel guides, am I on the right path? Or what do you need me to know right now? And they don't respond instantly, but it usually comes later, loud and clear. Okay, so last weekend is a perfect example of that. I felt called to follow through on something I wanted to make for an author friend of mine. It was a lazy Sunday, like a rare day when we had nothing on the calendar. I told my husband I had to go to Snoqualmie. He took our dog with him to work, so I was free to run my errands and not worry about what would happen at home (laughs) without me for a couple hours. I found what I needed at a rock and mineral shop, except I wanted a box. Like I pictured it being old, worn, interesting, and I remember this like shop that has a little bit of everything uh, just a few miles down the road. I drove there and looked around. I like circled the store twice and the shopkeeper asked why I, what I was looking for. And I told her and she goes, I don't think we have anything like that. 
And as she was racking her brain, my intuition kept whispering, it's here, the box is here. The box keeper, she rubbed her chin and I approached the desk to just kind of look a little bit more closely at what was underneath the register. And that was the moment I saw the box. It was perfect. It was like the one I'd imagined. I handed it to her and she said, where the hell did that thing come from? She turned it upside down to read the price tag and there wasn't one. She had no idea when it came into the store. She owns the store and she had no idea. So we laughed and she made up a price. And as I left the shop there on the sidewalk were two of my dear friends who also, like me, were far away from home. None of us could believe it. It was all God-driven. So once home, I readied the gift. I wrote a note. I um, drove it down the way to, like the party store has a little mail uh, window there. And the whole time I had this playlist, my 80s playlist going on Spotify and Foreigners Waiting for a Girl Like You came on. I mean, I was singing at the top of my lungs as I pulled into the parking spot. I entered the shop. I gave the package to the cashier and the opening strains of Waiting for a Girl Like You played on their overhead speakers. Now you're just showing off, I said to the universe. It was a lovely affirmation and a testament. When I bother to stay plugged in, my days go smoother. Things tend to work themselves out. I feel charmed and grateful and tingly with love. It's like in that Harry Potter movie, if you've seen the Felix Felicius, it's like that. If you bother to tap into listening to, you know, the universe, this whatever you want to call it, spirit source. And when I don't, everything is an obstacle. I'd love to know if you are on a spiritual journey. Are you just starting out? Have you been going after it for a while? Are you not interested in the slightest and someone forced you to listen to my podcast? I'm sorry if that's the case. I'd like to hear about it. Hit me in the comments, okay? Next week marks the one-year anniversary of my father's passing. It's a good time as any to share that story with you and how it helped me to overcome the second obstacle in my spiritual journey, overcoming the fear of death. So much of our lives are fear-based. I find, I, you know, I've been finding that since breaking that cycle, I have a lot more energy and I'd love to share that gift with you. Thank you for listening to Curious Cat. If you like the content, stories, and information, I'd be grateful if you could like and review us on your favorite streaming service. It would help others find us as well. Huge gratitude for my art director and audio engineer. If you're in the need of those services, please find their links in the show notes. Also, please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Join the conversation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, be well. I love you. 